0: Well, change is upon us. This, uh, of course, being our final worship service in this building, Together's Congregation. For some, that's exciting news. Several of you have told me over the past couple of weeks how excited you are for the changes that are coming. You're excited to be together in one worship service again after a number of years in two and three And now even beginning to contemplate four worship services, we're glad to be moving back in the other direction. Some of you have told me you're just simply grateful for breathing room, for hallways where you can slide past someone without, you know, touching three people at the same time. Some of you are grateful for a little less of a drive. You've been coming a long way to this uh, part of Woodstock and you're grateful for uh, an extra 10 minutes of time on Sunday morning at our new location. Some of you are grateful for what you believe will be ministry opportunities that will come with the new location. You're excited for all that. Some of you are just excited to be excited, I think. And we're grateful for you as well. But I know that for some, that change is a scary prospect, right? Anytime you have a group of people, there's always that... that uh, a continuum in that group where some are more welcoming to change and, of course, some are a little more unnerved by it. You might be unnerved over the idea of having to go to a new place and learn new things and find your way around. Those things may make you feel a little uncomfortable. You imagine a Sunday morning in terms of routines, routine places you go, routine people that you see. Uh, Some of you probably sit in the same seat every week in worship. And so you're just sort of creatures of habit. You're going to leave your uh, uh, driveway next week and you're going to take the wrong turn headed to this building and then remember, oh wait, I've got to go to a new place. And all of those things are just a little bit worrisome to you. And this new location, this new format is going to present not only unfamiliar places, It's even going to present unfamiliar faces because whether you know it or not, there are people who have been worshiping in this building for maybe a year that you've never met. They just worship in another hour or in another Sunday school. So every one of us next week are going to feel a little something like a new visitor in our own church, and it's going to feel strange to us. But if you are one who finds the security in the familiar, my prayer is that what you'll find is surprise in the unfamiliar, surprise in the unknown, that what you'll really be drawn back to are the realities of what binds us together as a church, which isn't a building, it isn't bricks and mortar, it is, of course, the Holy Spirit. It's our common confession of faith. And for those of us who fellowship at Faith Community Church, of course, it is particularly Above those things, a love for hearing the word of God taught expositionally. It is a love for sound doctrine. It is a desire for purity in the fellowship, which is guarded by discipline. It's a love for biblical church government and a a desire for the glory of God in all things. And what this transition really will bring is more than ever for you opportunities for fellowship with more people than ever who really are here for the same reasons as you. More opportunities to meet more people who share the same loves that you do. So although we all may be a little bit like a visitor, I hope that we'll understand it's the potential uh, for really rediscovering Faith Community Church for rediscovering all the things you really love about this church and rediscovering tons of people that you haven't had a chance to get to know, which you're going to come and uh, come to love in the years to come. They're going to be as dear to you as any who are in the church. And I'm excited about all of those things. I'm also excited, I guess, sort of underneath it all, at the opportunity for us to demonstrate what I am confident is true about us as a congregation. That all that we say and all that we do out of love for the truth and love for the gospel and love for the doctrine will shine forth in times of strain, in times of of challenge, in times of even trial and difficulty. Because just like every challenge in your own life and every trial in your own life, this is ultimately something that will prove our character. It will demonstrate What we are on the inside, the way that we respond not only to adversity, but even to little inconveniences and small obstacles that might present themselves, all of them will simply give us new and fresh opportunities to demonstrate the spiritual maturity that we are all pursuing. So in some ways, you're not only going to have a chance to rediscover faith community in a new location and with new faces, but even new opportunities to see the spiritual quality of the church, which so endeared you, no doubt, at the beginning when you first joined us. With all that being said, I want to turn our attention this morning to to what some of those things are which mark spirituality, they mark spiritual maturity, they mark a fullness of the Spirit or a filling of the Spirit within the life of a body of Christ. I want to talk about being filled with the Spirit or led by the Spirit as a church as we move out from this place and into the next place. Because that's my prayer and my desire, is that no matter what our circumstances and location or whatever it might be, that we will, above all, be known not by a location, but by the evidences of the Spirit working among us. Now, I know that when some people think about the evidences of the Spirit, they think about very different things for some people evidences of the spirit are are outward manifestations of something miraculous maybe even the evidences of of a gift of tongues or a gift of prophecy or something like that but we know when we look into the scripture that the the emphasis that comes to us from the pages of scripture on the evidences of the spirit or or we might even say the fruits of the spirit come to us in very different terms they come to us in things like the unity of the Spirit, which Ephesians 4 says is given to us by the Spirit and preserved in the bond of peace. So we know that unity is one of the evidences of the Spirit. We know in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 that forgiveness is spoken about as an evidence of the Spirit or a work of the Spirit in our lives. And we also know from Ephesians 4 that by not showing forgiveness, we can quench the Holy Spirit, as he says there. In fact, you not only quench the Holy Spirit, Second Corinthians says you make yourself a pawn in the ploy of Satan to destroy the church because unforgiveness is one of his primary schemes and attacks against the church. But those who are led by the Spirit, those who are filled with the Spirit, those who walk by the Spirit, those who have the love of God shed abroad in their hearts by the Holy Spirit, the grace of forgiveness dominates their minds and hearts and lives. We could talk about fruits of the Spirit like servanthood or holiness or humility or any of those things. But this morning I thought... Just for the sake of convenience, we could focus our hearts on this very familiar passage in Galatians chapter 5 that speaks to us about the fruits of the Spirit. And as we prepare for the journey ahead in the coming uh, days and weeks, months and years, we prepare ourselves to demonstrate these kinds of marks, these kinds of evidences that the Spirit is at work guiding and directing our steps and the evidence of it is seen by these kinds of fruits in our lives. This is what we believe the Lord has called us to. This is a passage that helps us focus on that and specifically with the application that will come during these times of transfer, uh, excuse me, transition. Now, Paul's presentation of the fruits of the Spirit here doesn't come in a vacuum. It comes in the context, obviously, of a book. We don't have time to run through all of Galatians, but we we who have studied it, if you've read it, you know that it was a church which, it, it seems, was struggling with legalism, struggling with achieving, uh, or at least some people wanting to achieve righteousness by the works of their uh, of their flesh or or the works and their effort I should say. But in the midst of that, maybe for the sake of balance or maybe to address some subgroup, Paul opens up chapter 5 to talk about those who in the name of liberty or the name of Christian freedom or maybe just imagining that that God's grace and forgiveness just sort of gives them a license. There are some who, in the name of that freedom, were pursuing or at least not battling against sin. They were looking at their forgiveness and their freedom as an excuse to go on sinning and to be unconcerned about it. And so, in light of that, Paul, beginning in verse 19, Sets for them a contrast between works of the flesh and fruits of the Spirit. And what he says here is that these works, these deeds, which which he calls deeds of the flesh, they're plain, they're evident, they're obvious. There should be no question in your mind where they come from. There ought to be no doubt whenever you see these kinds of things where their source is. And he mentions things like strife, jealousy, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, fits of anger, not to mention impurity and drunkenness. Paul says these things are the evident works, works that arise from the sinful nature, the sinful flesh that's within us. In fact, anyone who is so characterized by these things. In other words, if this is what marks your life as a pattern of behavior, be warned, he says in verse 21, be warned that those who are marked by these things will not inherit eternal life. In other words, that this is the marker of someone whose mind is still set on the things of the flesh. This is the marker of someone who may not even be born again. But in contrast to all that, Paul says there's a person who lives under the control of the Spirit. Their life is being governed by the Spirit. Their mind is being filled with the Spirit. Their heart is being filled with the Spirit. They are a Spirit-controlled, Spirit-filled person. In the same way that we seek to be a Spirit-controlled, Spirit-filled church. And he... he, uh, he indicates or he gives us these indicators, these markers, these characteristics of a spirit-filled, spirit-controlled person in eight characteristics in verses 22 and 23. We know them as the fruits of the Spirit. But what they really are, mostly and by and large, are spiritual attitudes. They're spiritual attitudes, which is interesting to me because Paul sets in contrast then for us spirit excuse me uh, works of the flesh and yet on the other side not works of the spirit but what attitudes of the spirit in other words he knew the danger of trying to boil down to just a short list of seven or eight different things that you do that prove that you are spirit filled he understood that to be a spirit-filled person, what you really need to demonstrate are certain attitudes that really pervade everything that you do. They're comprehensive in the sense that they mark every turn and every twist and every endeavor and every deed of your life. And so in contrast to these These works, these works of the flesh and deeds of the flesh, he sets before us or presents before us these spiritual attitudes that mark, that characterize a spirit filled person, and we would say characterize a spirit filled church. These, in other words, are the things that we aim to be and the things we pray we will be even as we make this transition. And so we want to look at them this morning with particular application to some of the challenges that we'll face in the coming weeks. Paul says, first of all, that these uh, spirit-filled, spirit-controlled people or spirit-filled, spirit-controlled churches are marked by love. It's appropriate that he starts there, that he begins with love because it is really the opposite of those, so many of those deeds of the flesh. It is the remedy, we might say, to the kind of dissension and strife and fits of anger and, and divisions that he mentioned there. But even for things like sexual immorality and drunkenness, they are manifestations of unbiblical love. Not only is it a mark of the fruit of the Spirit, love it's very characteristic is the mark of a believer. He says, uh, we, or Jesus tells us in John 13, 35, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So at the very core... Love is the right uh, starting place because it is the place where we identify, first of all, true believers. John says later on in his first epistle, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So love, uh, we know, is an evidence. It's an evidence that you've been born of God and it's an evidence that you know God. And we would add to that Love is an evidence that you know the Scripture, that you know doctrine, that you know truth. You can make a claim to knowing truth. You can make a claim to having good and sound doctrine. But if you don't love or if you don't demonstrate biblical love, your claim is empty. It is false. Jesus himself was asked, you remember one time, to give a summary or at least to give a a pinnacle of the word of of God. Someone came and asked him, what is the greatest of the commandments? And they were obviously looking for one or two commandments. What Jesus gave them wasn't a single, uh, uh, if you will, a single commandment out of the Old Testament to focus on. What he gave them was a comprehensive commandment, which he said summarizes all, not only of the law, but also the prophets. In other words, Jesus gave us a summary of the entirety of the Word of God up to that point in his life, everything that had been written in what they would know as the Bible, the Old Testament. And this is what he said. He said, you can summarize the entirety of God's Word in this. First of all, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. This was all of it. And the implication being that if you understand the law, if you understand the prophets, if you understand the New Testament, if you understand truth, if you understand doctrine, if you understand knowledge or all that, if you understand all that, the way that you'll know it is that it will produce love into your life. So this love is the evidence that you know God, or that, first of all, that you're born of God, that you know God, that you know the Scripture, and obviously it's the evidence that you're filled with the Spirit, as Paul says here. See, as the Spirit is poured out in our hearts, which is what Romans 5 says, the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God into our hearts. As that happens, what takes place is that He fills our minds with the understanding of God's love for us, and it overflows naturally by the Spirit, or independence, I should say, in this, on the Spirit. It overflows naturally toward others. It overflows even in difficult circumstances. In fact, if you have your Bible, look at Romans 5 for a second because a lot of people, I think, overlook the context of this statement about the Spirit pouring out the love of God in our hearts. You'll see in Romans 5, Paul's talking about how we rejoice in sufferings and we do that because we know that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character and character produces hope. And you'll notice in verse 5 that hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So he's talking about love being poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. But he says it very specifically within the context of suffering. Within the context of having to endure within the context of difficulty and what he's saying is is that this love which has been poured out in our hearts will be demonstrated even in difficult situations as an evidence of the holy spirit in your life and as an explanation of all that he points to our own experience with god you'll notice the explanatory clause in verse 6 for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love, God demonstrates, God puts on display his love for us. And then while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You could look down even in verse 10, he talks about even while we were enemies of God. So in other words, he's saying, look, this love which, which you're going to demonstrate through suffering, which you're going to demonstrate as you endure difficult circumstances, this love which is shed abroad in your hearts, the reason it's there, the reason it shows itself even in the face of difficult situations and even in, in, in the face of difficult people, the reason it's there is because the Holy Spirit is helping you to understand you were A difficult case you were an enemy of god you were weak you were unresponsive you were spiritually dead you weren't presenting anything which merited the love of god you were we would say unlovable in a spiritual sense and really in every sense And it's really in spite of that, in spite of that, which was unlovable about you, in spite of the fact that you were an enemy, in spite of the fact that you were a sinner, God demonstrated, God showed, God manifested love. All of this helps us to understand then what the kind of love is that the Holy Spirit gives to us. It is a love that is driven not by that which is attractive, not by that which is lovable in either another person or even in your circumstances. It's governed not by what the other person deserves. It's governed not by how they treat you. It's governed not by even how you feel about them. It is governed by this dominant truth in your heart and mind that God loved you when you were a sinner. Another way to say that is that love that is according to the Holy Spirit is intentionally sacrificial. It loves Not based on what it can receive in return. But it gives freely because God has given freely to it. Or it gives, we might even say, simply out of the joy and pleasure of being like God. That if you are simply giving to people who are going to give you in return, as Jesus says in Luke 6, there's nothing remarkable about that. Everyone does that. But a child of God is going to be recognized as one who gives even when he doesn't receive. And so even as we prepare to move as a church, we understand that what is ahead of us will require sacrifice. It will require the laying down of yourself. It will require becoming uh, 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 familiar with an unfamiliar surrounding. It will require offering up your time and your service for all that takes place in the setting up and the tearing down of a worship space each week. It'll require you giving up the the, the routines of your life and even the conveniences of having a building. We understand all that. It's our expectation that a spirit-filled church will meet all those challenges. Not with complaining, not with self-pity, but will meet all those challenges as every spirit-filled church would with love, with sacrifice, with giving, and hopefully, with a deeper reflection on the grace of the gospel which has redeemed you, people have asked me a couple of people have asked me over the last couple of weeks uh, when they when they either stopped by the church or realized that we had actually allowed the church that 's purchasing this building to come in before they even have signed or, or, or completed the deal I should say, they actually came in as you see they 've kind of done a little bit of work here on the stage because they uh, uh, officially closed this deal um, on the last day of the month, and yet they have a worship service uh, two days later, August 2nd. So we understand. I mean, that's, that would be impossible to get everything in place the way they would want. And, and yet people have come and said, why? why? Why do we have to let them in? It's our, you know, our last few days. I mean, let's, uh, let's just sort of stick to our guns or whatever it might be. And, and so people have asked, why, why do we let them in? Well, I mean, the simple answer is just simply because that's what I would want someone to do for me. Right? I mean, isn't that the command that Jesus has given to us? We don't do things for people because they do things for us in return. We do things for people because God has done so much for us. And so we we make gracious uh, accommodations. We Come alongside, in fact, we were here on Friday and they were working away on their stage or something like that. I popped in here and said, hey, you guys want some lunch? Is there any way I can serve you? Because this is what the love of God teaches us to do. This is what the love of God calls us to do. This is what the law of God really uh, uh, mandates that we do, that we love. Not only one another, but everyone who's around us. And So even as we move into our new facility, we understand that there will be challenges. There will be challenges. There will be things which call on you to set aside your own personal interest for the interest of others. And all of that, Paul says, when we do that, we are operating not only with the mind of Christ. But we're operating under the control of the Holy Spirit. You'll be stretched. I, I know you'll be stretched. You'll be challenged. You'll be called to service. You'll be called to sacrifice. But really what I'm excited about is the opportunities to see in the next couple of years the maturity of a congregation who has heard so much about the love of God poured out for them in the cross of Christ with even greater opportunities in the next coming years to demonstrate in practical ways that love toward one another and toward even strangers to exemplify, if you will, the kind of spiritual life the kind of spiritual vibrancy among ourselves as a congregation which really for so many of us first endeared us to this congregation. I mean I, I'm thinking about next week you know I'll, I'll be a little bit like a, a visitor experiencing a new church not only in a new location maybe, maybe even some new faces but even new and fresh opportunities to see spiritual vitality in ways that we've not seen it before. Secondly Paul talks about joy. He says that the Spirit marks us or gives us fruits of joy, which is a surprise to some people because they don't, or I should say, when they think about this list, they may think about it as some sort of ethical list, some sort of list of right and wrong, some sort of list of things which are sinful and things which are not sinful. And so it really strikes some people as they see joy listed because they're challenged To think, is it inherently right or wrong not to be joyful? Or we might even ask, is it sinful not to have joy in your life? Well, whether you want to call it sinful to have a lack of joy, I think based on this passage, you have to say at the very least, the lack of joy is not characteristic of a spiritual person. A lack of joy is not characteristic of a Spirit-filled person. Because joy is associated not only here, but in other places with the Holy Spirit. And unless you think that, that joy is the byproduct of simply people who sort of luck out in life and have wonderful circumstances, you should understand that when Paul mentions joy and the Holy Spirit... He often mentions it in the context of difficulties. For example, Romans 14, 17, he says, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now that in Romans 14 is, is in the context of conflict between individual believers where in some cases some believers were looking down on or condemning other believers because they didn't share the same sort of uh, uh, spiritual scruples in certain areas of life. They they looked at uh, their freedoms and their liberties differently. And so there was conflict among believers. And Paul says, look, one of the most characteristic things about a kingdom citizen aren't your personal Uh, spiritual scruples but it is this the kingdom of God is a matter not of eating and drinking but of righteousness and peace and joy one of the things that will mark a citizen of the kingdom of God will be joy not to mention peace the next chapter he says may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope once again we see Peace and joy combined together with the Holy Spirit. But this time, it's in the context of those who would threaten the harmony of the church. Those who would come in and sow discord and put up obstacles to peace and fellowship. And in the midst of all that, Paul says that God and the Holy Spirit will fill you with joy. He will fill you with joy, even if it's difficult circumstances, even if it's difficult people The Holy Spirit is going to give you joy that will transcend all of those difficulties. It will go beyond all those difficulties. Now, Paul spoke from experience. This is not a a man who had a candy-coated life. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, he speaks about himself along with all the other apostles saying that they were surrounded by grief or surrounded by sadness. And yet, he says in 2 Corinthians 6.10, they always were abounding with joy. Now, he doesn't give us the details fully there, but we know what he's talking about. He's talking about how as the apostles went around and served Christ and preached Christ, they encountered all kinds of trouble. There was hunger. There was sleeplessness. There was Uh, being poorly clothed as he says but over and above that there were shipwrecks they were uh, afloat in the deep a night and a day they were run out of towns they were considered scoundrels everywhere they went their lives were under threat and Paul is saying that it didn't matter whether he was in the middle of a of a, a, a jail cell in a pit, or it didn't matter if he was in the middle of a mob being thrown out of a city. He was saying, in spite of all these circumstances, we were always abounding with joy. And what he's saying to them is that my joy isn't dictated by my circumstances. My joy isn't dictated by my surroundings. My joy comes from something else. So a lack of joy at the very least, we might say, marks a life that isn't focused on the right things. A lack of joy, if you want to call it sinful or not, is at the very least an evidence of a life that has put its hope and trust in something other than God. It has put its hope and trust, it's found its joy in something other than that which has been eternally accomplished in Christ. Because it's that eternal gift of Christ which is the foundation of Paul's unshakable joy and it is the foundation of the spiritual joy that the Spirit gives to us. A sour attitude may indicate a heart that has forgotten the love and the grace of God. Or worse yet, it may indicate a heart and a life that's begun to seek its satisfaction and its security in something other than God. In other words, an idolatrous heart. Now, the application of all this ought to be obvious. Even as we move to a temporary location. That if you have found yourself struggling whether or not you can have as much joy worshiping god in some temporary facility as you could in these buildings you really ought to be asking yourself you really ought to be challenging yourself where are you finding your joy or maybe what are you worshiping because the issue may not even be that you're worshiping a building issue could very well be that now you're worshiping yourself you're worshiping your conveniences your happiness your whatever it might be your interests but a heart that is focused on the Lord and what the Lord has accomplished for you, a heart that is eternally focused, a heart that is always mindful of those things, is filled with the Holy Spirit and therefore filled with joy, and the outward circumstances make no impact at all. The heart filled with joy, regardless of what's going on on the outside. Thirdly, Paul mentions the fruit of the Spirit, which he says is peace peace in verse 22 there. And don't read that and immediately think what he's talking about is some sort of freedom from inner turmoil. In fact, I think given the context, the fruit of the Spirit that Paul's talking about is in fact peace with other people. The evidence of the Spirit that he has in mind here is the fact that as Jesus says, you are a peacemaker. I think especially given the fact that The dominant picture of the works of the flesh that he just mentioned are things like enmity and strife and jealousy and fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions and divisions. That the corrective to all that that comes to us by the Spirit of God, the evidence that you're being filled with the Spirit of God, that you're walking by the Spirit of God, is that that kind of discord is no longer a part of your life. We mentioned in Ephesians 4 how we are urged to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. On the same way, we understand that the Holy Spirit pours out in our hearts this peace and it becomes a fruit, it becomes an evidence, it becomes a marker of our life as Paul speaks about it here. And that's because, as all these other markers that we've seen so far, that's because God is a God of peace. He's a God of peace. In fact, when you are a peacemaker, Jesus says you'll be called a child of God. You'll be recognized as having one of the characteristics of God. And it's interesting to me, as you read through the New Testament, Paul uses a title for God a couple times. He, He calls him the God of peace. And in every situation where he does that... He uses this title of God always in the context of strife and unrest among believers as if He's reminding us when we might be tempted toward those kinds of things, reminding us that it was God who who overcame our own obstinance and our own difficulty and our own sinfulness and made peace with us. Romans 16, 20. The church there Paul's giving a warning about those who cause divisions and create obstacles. But he encourages them in Romans sixteen twenty, saying the God of peace. Will soon crush Satan under your feet. In other words, Paul understood. That Satan has his schemes to bring obstacles, to bring even division within the church. And as a a matter of encouragement and a matter of comfort, he's telling them the God of peace, the one who made peace with you, the one who fills the heart of every believer with, with peace towards one another, he will soon overcome even those difficulties. Even in Colossians, Paul tells believers to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And he wasn't talking about simply some inner sense of tranquility and meditation, He specifically gives that verse in Colossians chapter 3 immediately after talking about the need to show humility and forgiveness and meekness and patience. Or, as he says in verse 14, to overcome the temptations toward complaining and bitterness and lack of forgiveness. Against all those things, we are to let the peace of Christ Dictate or rule our hearts so it rules our interaction with one another. Once again, you know, I, I think the op- application is obvious as we move forward, as we make this transition. We understand that there are going to be a lot of things that could cause friction. They could cause disappointment. They could cause misunderstanding as we iron out all of the, the knots and the kinks and the bumps in the road. We have done everything we could to be as prepared as we could for the coming transition. But honestly, we don't really know what's going to happen. Okay? Let me be the one to say that. We have gone out there and tried to research, you know, how to do this whole temporary church thing for the period of time that we have to do it. But everywhere you look, every resource you have seems to be targeted towards people that might have 30 or 50 people. I haven't yet found a resource that tells you how to do it with 500 so all that to say is I'm sure we're going to miss something. We're going to miss, you know, the, uh, maybe the chairs won't be right or the signs won't be right or the timing won't be right or the coffee will be, well, the coffee better be right. And everything else, you know, may go by the wayside. And there will be temptations, you know, temptations to, got a fan back there there will be temptations for us to, to, to be irritated or whatever it might be, and these are the times when we have to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts and give evidence of the fact that we are, we are, by God's grace, a spirit-filled congregation. Obviously, closely with that is the next fruit that he gives, which is patience. In verse 22, there the word macrothumia simply the word macro for really large or big, and the word thumos for anger. It talks about something who someone, I should say, that it takes something really, really big, or we might even say it takes an awful lot to make them upset, to make them angry. This is this is patience. This is long suffering, the ability to suffer through an awful lot before you react in any kind of negative way, either verbally or otherwise. We're not talking about, in other words, enduring the traffic light. We're not talking about waiting for the person to pull out of a parking place at the the store in front of you. We're talking about the, 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 the fullness of the Spirit which gives you, in the midst of even strife and divisions or whatever is going on here in the Galatian church, it gives you The grace for forbearance, out of love, putting up with a lot from other people before becoming uh, short-tempered, provoked, irritated, angry, or whatever it might be. This, of course, is the byproduct, again, of exactly what God's done for us. Remember Romans 2, 4. Have you not understood the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience? Have you forgotten how patient God has been with you? One of the evidences that you have not forgotten that is that you will endure. You will forbear. You will be patient with so much and still demonstrate the grace and love of Christ. Difficult circumstances. Difficult people. You know, those those themselves... They don't erode your opportunity to worship God. If you're thinking about it rightly, they actually enhance it. They actually enhance it because they provide you with opportunities that you may not have had otherwise to be what God has been to you. To demonstrate how God has demonstrated His love to you, They provide difficult circumstances, difficult uh, situations, provide opportunities for you to reflect the character of God in patience. And so they don't detract from your worship. In fact, they enhance it. They enhance it. Paul adds a fifth fruit of the Spirit, which is kindness, in verse 22. It's the companion, or some people would say the opposite side of the coin of patience. If patience is is enduring difficult people without responding negatively kindness is is encountering difficult people and being gracious toward them or having a gracious attitude toward those people who are ungracious with you and again all because this is the way God has dealt with us Ephesians 2:4 excuse me 2:7 he saved you and showed you as he says immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness. You couldn't even begin to describe or measure or enumerate or list all the ways God has been kind to you. And those are the kinds of things which ought to move and motivate us to demonstrate God-likeness, Godliness toward others to demonstrate that we've been transformed by this gospel into in like manner kind and gracious people with one another just as he lavished his grace on us just as he intended good for us just as he sought out that which benefited us we do the same we do the same even for those who would not be considered worthy this is the marker of a spirit filled person. This is not the fruit, or I should say, this is not a work of the flesh. This isn't something that arises from your flesh. It's something that is accomplished only in the power of the Spirit. And that's what we pray as we move forward, as we move out, that our interaction, our days, our worship, everything we do in the coming months and years will be marked by the same kindness. Because it's uh, it's eliciting from the same spirit who's always indwelt us, and with that we could add goodness, which really is the outworking of this kindness. Kindness would speak of the attitude; goodness would speak of the action. These uh, these uh, good deeds, these good expressions, are the actions that come out of a heart of grace. Paul speaks about it in Romans fifteen. Verse 14, how he is confident that the church in Rome it would be filled with these kinds of good deeds with one another because they had understood the gospel. Because they were filled with the knowledge of the gospel, they would encourage one another. They would sanctify one another. They would minister to one another. We can add quickly with that number seven, which is faithfulness in verse twenty two trustworthiness, dependency or dependability might be a, a good way to say that, even loyalty. I was doing some reading on that uh, this week and, and trying to understand faithfulness I mean faithfulness can uh, can speak of faithfulness to the law of God, but those words are are or those uh, i should say uh, uh, characteristics are normally. Associated with words like holiness or righteousness, but when you read about faithfulness, particularly in the Old Testament, what you read about is faithfulness to God's covenant or faithfulness to God's promises, and not only that, but you find it in in uh, greater uh, uh, expression or or, or or more frequency you find references to the faithfulness of God in the Psalms and in the latter prophets in the midst of trying circumstances for Israel. That's where the faithfulness of God is always highlighted. It's highlighted in trying circumstances, sometimes circumstances that God Himself has orchestrated to bring about chastening and discipline. And yet in the midst of those times, What you find the prophet saying is that in spite of the fact that all of these terrible things are happening, God will be faithful to you. God will be faithful to his promises, faithful to his covenant. And so you begin to get this picture, this picture of God affirming his commitment, affirming his loyalty. Affirming his dependability when the circumstances around Israel would have made them doubt it. Would have made them question it. The reminders come that God's faithful, God's dependable, God's reliable. God is loyal to his promises. And so we understand this in our lives. When he talks about faithfulness, he's not talking about simply a, 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 a loyalty to the law, which, you know, as, as I said, normally is described as righteousness. But I really believe he's talking about a, a trustworthiness between believers, a reliability, a dependability, a loyalty, so that even in the most difficult times of life, we are coming alongside of one another, affirming to one another our love, our commitment our dependability, our loyalty to one another, that we will not abandon each other. Obviously, again, as you head into any trying time of life, but even as we head into the most difficult part of our transition to our new property in the next uh, year or two, are, are the kinds of evidences of the Spirit that we hope and Expect to see these kinds of affirmations of, of faithfulness and loyalty amongst ourselves as believers. I, I hope that's true, certainly, of us as a church. I hope it's true of you in your home and your marriage. I hope that these are the kind of regular reminders that you're giving to one another that, hey, this is a difficult time in our life, but I want to tell you, I am, I am faithful, I am loyal, I am committed. And the reason you say those things isn't necessarily because life is easy or even because your spouse is worthy or any of those other things. You say those things because they're evidences that the Spirit is at work in your heart and life. And God has been so faithful and loyal and dependable for you. Unless, of course, you don't believe that. Unless, of course, in your heart what you really believe is that God has not been faithful to you. That God has been disloyal to you. That God has been undependable for you. Unless you have that kind of disbelief in your heart. There's no excuse for you. No excuse for you not to be filled with the Spirit. Not to demonstrate. In every way. What God has already demonstrated to you by his faithfulness. We're hoping as we move into this temporary location. As we are. In more need than ever of dependability. As we depend on one another for practical things, maybe like we never have, we depend on one another not only for setting up and tearing down and setting, you know, loading trailers or whatever it might be, but for the ongoing ministries of teaching Bible studies and caring for children and singing and worship and all those other things, not to mention greeting visitors and And making people feel welcome and helping them find their way around this new environment. And all of those ways, our hope and desire is to see a spirit filled church, a church showing faithfulness and dependability amongst themselves. We could add to that number eight, gentleness. Gentleness, or as some translations put it, meekness. This, if you wanted to summarize this this characteristic, You could say it this way. It's simply the desire not to lay any unnecessary burden on another person. It's a desire not to lay any unnecessary burden on another person. In fact, gentleness really, when you look at it in Scripture, is the desire to relieve their burden. To relieve it. Matthew Chapter 11, 29, Jesus described himself this way, saying he was gentle and lowly in heart because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. I mean, we love to be around those people who are that way. They relieve our burdens. They lift off of us by way of encouragement, by words of encouragement, by deeds of service and love. Gentleness, in other words, is not simply a tone of voice. You may think it's that way, but you can say even in a, a, a very soft and gentle tone that you're unhappy. You can come along someone and you can be one of those uh, problem finders rather than problem solvers. And all you're there, you're just, you're just dumping on someone else all of your dissatisfaction. You can say it in the sweetest voice possible, but you're not being gentle. You're piling on You are adding to the burden and you're not there to lift it. You're not coming alongside saying, you know what? There's this issue going on. You know, uh, I can see it. Is there any way that I can be involved? I want to help. I want to lift burdens. I want to make the yoke light. You know, Paul talks about this even a few verses later in a spiritual sense, not in a logistic sense. But in a spiritual sense there in Galatians chapter 6, he says, If anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him, how? In a spirit of gentleness. And he turns right around in verse 2 and he says, Bear one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens. This is why we, this is why we go out of our way to spend time with people who are hurting Because we want to come alongside of them, whether it is their struggle with a guilty conscience, whether their struggle with conflict or whatever it might be, and we want to lift the burden with them. We want to help them uh, raise that burden off of their shoulders. The last thing we want to do is come alongside someone who is caught up in a transgression, caught up in a sin, and somehow pile on or heap scorn or heap shame or whatever it might be because they've sinned, even if they deserve it. That's not what a gentle spirit does. One who understands the way Christ has dealt with them, the gentleness He's dealt with them, has as their goal to lift the burdens, to remove the yokes, and to bear all of those along with you. This is what the Spirit does. This is what every church needs. It needs the kind of people who deal tenderly and gently and And compassionately with one another. So that we all are not heaping the burden on just a couple of uh, few. Or we aren't casting out those who aren't in our minds spiritual enough. And laying heavy burdens on them. A gentle congregation. A spirit-filled congregation. Is ones who come alongside of each other. And bear one another's burdens. Obviously our hope as we move forward. That will be our attitude that that'll be our spirit, that I'll be our approach as we we go through this transition time. Finally, Paul mentions number nine, self-control in verse 23, which is not so much an attitude. In fact, it's not even uh, something that we could say corresponds to God because the word really speaks about subduing fleshly desires, controlling fleshly desires. And God doesn't have fleshly desires. But this is still something that marks a spirit-filled person. Uh, This, maybe more than anything else, relates to the drunkenness and the sexual immorality when it comes to those deeds of the flesh. But a spirit-filled person will exercise self-control over all of those things. He knows, in other words, how to say no to temptations because he understands the prize of spirituality And the treasure that's set before him. Paul speaks about self-discipline in his own life. He talks about self-control in his own life in terms of athletic contest or even military contest. And he speaks about how an athlete knows how to discipline his own body. How a soldier knows how to not become entangled with the things of the world. Why? Because he understands victory. He understands what it takes to win the battle or to win the contest. And so he doesn't become distracted and take his eye off of the goal or the prize. This is a spirit-filled person. A spirit-filled person continues to pursue all his days, all her days. Continues to pursue the prize, keeping their body under control. These are the fruits of the Spirit. And Paul rounds out the list by saying there in verse uh, 22. That against such things there is no law. Excuse me, verse 23. The law was given in order to restrict. The law was given because people had sinful hearts. The law existed because of sin. And it came against sin in order to curtail sin. It wasn't given against virtue. So in other words, when these virtues are present, the law is really irrelevant. There's no need to restrict these kinds of things. As Calvin says, when the Spirit reigns, the law no longer has dominion. Well, when the Spirit is working in your heart, there's no need for the law to restrict you. You can be as good as you want to be. God will never say stop. You can be as patient. You can be as loving. You can be as kind. You can be all these things and never have to worry that somehow you're going to do too much. There's no law against them. God wants as much as there can possibly be in our lives. He wants us to be like Him. Marked by these characters. Evidenced by these fruits. He is not profound. I was wondering, you know, what are the kinds of things we can think about As we get ready for this transition, what are the what are the kind of things that we focus on? And I was just thinking, you know, it's really not profound. It's simple. It is simple. It is it is the gospel and what the gospel teaches us in our life. And in some ways, this is just the time for us to come back to that. It's the time for us to come back to the basics of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, all those things. The time for us to put them into action, to really put where our mouth is, the deeds of our life. My prayer is certainly as we go, what we'll find as we find a new building next week, as we find our way around a new location, what we'll find might be some new faces that you haven't quite had a chance to become acquainted with in this congregation. But really, what I hope we find is the character of our church what i hope we find is the thing which endears us to faith community church is the fact that because of the depth of understanding the depth of teaching all that we've been recipients of what we'll find is a church full of the spirit led by the spirit controlled by the spirit and blessed of god